0: Good morning. Will you guys open in your Bibles to the 10th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews? I'm going to read uh, verses 26 through 39. That's a lengthier passage. Before I read, I I want you to uh, just really pay attention as I'm reading to a sort of a shift in tone you see uh, in between the first and the second paragraph. I won't say any more than that. You'll notice it and we'll talk about it later. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence." which has a great reward for you do. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but the righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Can I pray for us? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We've come to a passage of scripture this morning that we acknowledge ahead of time is your word, but it it does, it scares us. And we wonder where we fit, on what side of the balance do we sit, and we can only turn towards you in your mercy. And so I pray you would do that in everyone's heart here this morning, that we would hear your word of judgment that we would all but that we would also hear a word of real and abiding grace in your name. Amen. Well, uh I don't I don't have to tell you that if it's by the writer to the Hebrews uh if he understands it to be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of this passage and have to stand up and explain it, enter into it, and ask you to enter into it. And so, I knew this was coming, you know. We've been away from Hebrews for three weeks. David uh, spoke last time about the joyful truth that the writer to the Hebrews tells us, which is, don't ever stop time spending or don't ever stop spending time together. I would have loved to have been able to tell you that. That's a wonderful thing to encourage people with. But I get what comes next. And what comes next is is more severe. And as I thought about, you know, how do you tackle this? I mean, how do how do of all people, how do I stand up here and talk about this? And there's a number of different ways, right? There's this way. Where I could get up here and I could read this passage and I could speak very hypothetically, right? I could put this text at arm's distance away from me. I could stand off the side. I could read it to you and I could do what any good publishing press, Christian publishing press does and give you Three views on the passage of Hebrews chapter 10, and I can conclude with my view, and then Kenny could play, and I could say the benediction, and we could all go home, and none of us, not a single one of us, would have to enter into it and deal with the existential crisis that it puts everyone in this room in. You could stand off to the side and do that. And there may be something positive about that because maybe you would remember that sermon and in two years you'd go back and you feel like you were sinning deliberately and you'd say, let me remember what piece of theology applies to that and we'd be okay. And even if I did that this morning, you might be okay with it, right? Because I read the passage and the tension that Went on in every single mind in this room. That tension that went on in your mind, it's palpable. I can feel it up here. You feel like a guitar string, a small guitar string stretched. Curious, pondering, nervous, not exactly sure where we're going to go with this. And so if I stood up here and I distanced myself from Hebrews 10, you'd probably be grateful too. But we have to do with this passage what we do with every passage. And so sometimes I use this phrase. It's not mine. I've can't. i read it somewhere along the way and picked it up. But I want to know how the word leaps, leaps the gap. I wanted to know that about 1 Samuel. I want to know that about every passage that we read in the reading. I wanted to know that about First and 2 Timothy. I want to see that happens, happen in the Psalms. No matter how many thousands of years have passed... I want to see the word leap the gap from that moment, from that time period, from that custom, and land squarely onto hearts in the 21st century, right? That's easy to do with some passages, right? Like if I'm thinking of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside waters that are resting. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. What do I got to... Where's the gap? The only gap is I got to tell you what a shepherd might look like in the 21st century. The rest of it is relaxation, right? Or what if we go to Jesus dividing the loaves and the fishes? And you say, I preach you that. It's a beautiful passage. Lots of people get filled. There's leftovers, all that. The only gap we got to break there is something like, God provides for you in your trouble today, right? And so that's easy. I want the word to leave the gap. But what about these primitive notions of justice, right? You come to Hebrews 10. I don't know if the word, if we want the Word to leap the gap with the same passion. And we can do a number of different things with it still. I mean, not all of you, but maybe many of you have read something like this and you've stared over the precipice of universalism. You've said, this is true, but it means something different. It means that if we live lives that don't honor God, we just evaporate, and maybe the good people that follow Christ, they walk on. Or maybe you've read it and you've just said, that's got to be all of us. That's got to be everybody. I mean, if this is true, it's true of everybody. And you're thrown into this kind of dreadful state of existential uncertainty. And you just want to get back to Sammy Rhodes talking about (laughs) Jesus scorning the Pharisees, right? And laughing about that. But we're back in Hebrews 10. Now, I do want to say this. I'm going to say... In the sermon, there's a lot more introduction than there is content, and that's because it feels appropriate to me to do it that way. But I want to say this at the outset, and before I say anything else, and this is, I don't even know if you guys all know who this is. This is going to sound sort of John Piper-ish, and I'm kind of apologizing for that ahead of time, but I think it's really true. And Hebrews 10 makes that really clear. God doesn't ever, no matter where you find Him, Whether you find Him with loaves and fishes, or whether you find Him with a staff in Psalm 23, or whether you find Him saying, let there be light, or whether you find Him encouraging Israel, He never fits into our status quo, American, suburban, or now urban, image we don't get to stand in judgment on God and define Him by what He would never do. Now I explain what I mean by that. You hear this all the time. I, pe- people have said this kind of thing to me uh, without number. I'll tell them something negative happened in my life, and I'll say, Hey, frankly, I'm struggling with it, and I don't know why it happened, and I can't get it. And they'll say this. I've heard it so many times. Well, you know what you can now? God would never do something like that to you. God would never do that. Because He's just not like that. He would never do something like that to you. You know why that doesn't help me? Is because it leaves me without God. Well, then who did do it to me? If God wasn't involved in it in one way or another, if His ways are not higher than my ways, and His thoughts are not higher than my thoughts, and I can't trust Him in those moments, guess who I'm left with? Just myself. And I'm way lonelier there. I'd way rather be with a confusing God than with a self that I understand pretty well and don't trust at all. There is truth in saying that to some degree. Because, of course, Paul tells us God's not the author of sin. But I don't like talking about God through the process of negation. And so when you come to Hebrews chapter 10, I don't like beginning with the idea that says God would never talk about deliberate sin, or God would never do anything to deliberate sin, and then moving from there. We have to begin with the proposition that the writer gives us, and then he gets the prerogative of building God in God's own image. I suspect that some of this stuff, at least the garden variety version of it, came from the 80s. I don't mean to blame everything on the 80s, I feel like I do. I feel like it's a punching bag. But this way of talking where you just kind of won't let God be anything, that kind of garden variety God, what I think it's essentially doing is deflecting our terror at God's freedom. When it comes to the way God executes judgment and justice, God remains unpredictable, right? But the other side is true. And David read it this morning in Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But what? There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now, that's a surprise. That final clause is shocking to me. Because you would think it would say, there's forgiveness with you that we would love you more, or that we would appreciate the fact that you're our benefactor. But that's not the way it works. There's forgiveness with God that he may be feared. There's a reason, I don't know. If you were able to compile, which you could, uh, Kenny could show you how to do this. It would take you forever, but you could do this. If you were to compile all of the liturgy that we've ever had over the course of the last three years and say all you wanted to do is look, see if you could make a concordance of the calls to worship that we've had, you would find, I think, I did not do this, I'm speculating, but I think this is true. That the call to worship that we've used more than any other time is Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, that starts by saying, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? And the reason we use that for the the beginning of a worship service, for the call to worship, is because I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what he's going to do in here today. After the call to worship, any number of things could happen. And so I don't. none of us stand up here presuming to know precisely what it means for God to act because He acts in kaleidoscopic ways and ways that we don't understand. Whether God judges or whether He forgives, He is terrifyingly different than you and I. You don't judge like He does, and you don't forgive with the rapidity that He is able to. It reminds you, I know you guys have heard this illustration a thousand times, but we're reading, uh, kind of reading, once a month, reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with our children, right? And you come to that part about Aslan, and Aslan, Mr. Beaver is trying to explain Aslan to Lucy. That's the C.S. Lewis's famous novel. And, and, and Mr. Beaver says, he's a lion. And she says, he's a what? How can he be good? And she says, how can he be safe? And Mr. Beaver says, oh, no, 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 no. He's not safe. Lions are never safe, but Aslan is good. So finally, by way of introduction, then we'll just do, say a few things. I say all this ahead of time because I just want to persuade you where I'm coming from in this sermon. I'm convinced that this passage articulates a kind of judgment, a kind of justice that we are from day to day ignorant of. Um, I'm going to tell you up front, and there's, I shouldn't have to do this because all of you already know this, I have besetting sins. I have besetting sins. I have sins that tend to recur daily, at best, at worst, much more frequently. And I'm convinced that this passage articulates a kind of judgment that isn't, all, isn't necessarily referring to to those things. I confess my beset- I try to confess my besetting sins regularly. There are people in my no- in my life that know me very deeply, but still I carry regret and guilt because of them. But here's what I've noticed happens. This is just my personal experience. You can come back to me and say this never happens to me, but this is just me. When I struggle with a besetting sin and I get afraid, fear always follows sin in my life. Here's what I'm generally afraid of. If you just take the example, take one example of me, maybe I anger, take an anger that I develop against Anna, who's my wife, Anna, about something. And I have an outburst that exposes that anger against my wife. I generally, almost 100% of the time, have one fear. And that's the fear that she's going to detach from me. I don't mean leave me, but I mean to detach from me. Inim- intimacy with her and my children will dwindle. Her desire to, me cl- to be close to me physically will diminish. Her passion to see me interacting with Sully and Jesse and Ruthie, all of that she'll become indifferent to, and all of that is an unwarrant- is a response to an unwarranted outburst of anger you know how familiar I am with that sort of judgment? I see it every single day of my life and the pain that it brings. Now that's all good and needed and frankly my fear of that judgment keeps me in line around the house sometimes. But that's not the kind of judgment that we're talking about in this passage. And this is a secondary question that goes on, along with the first example. Now, who among you... Pretend you didn't just know me, but you knew Anna. Who among you, and you knew us well, who among you would fault Anna for that kind of detachment? Sort of depends on who you are, right? I mean, if you're in an accountability group with me, you might fault me. But if you've been sitting around an accountability group for years with Anna, I'm not saying Anna has this, I'm using this as an illustration, and you've heard her repetitively confess extended periods of anger, you might look at Anna and say, sounds like it wasn't that big of a deal. sounds like you might have something you need to repent of. Now you see where I'm going with this, right? The writer to the book of Hebrews tells us that God is judging, not Anna. Anna has a right to judge me, but the consequences of Anna's judgment of me are temporary because she is a sinner herself. God's judgment is cosmic in its scope. And it comes after the course of a whole life lived, and he happens to be perfectly morally holy. I am so wrapped up personally in what sin costs me here on earth a job, a relationship, a respect, success, and so on, that I very rarely take the full weight of the cosmic scope of judgment on my shoulders and bear it all the way to the city of God. There's an assumption in this passage that there are two kinds of people. There are those people who sin deliberately and are not renewed to repentance and there are those who have somehow participated in the church community and in Christ despite repetitive sin and have, and have come to full and abiding faith. So, I just want to ask two questions very briefly and we'll, and we'll close. And I think these are the questions that you're probably asking. One, what does it mean to sin deliberately? I talked to 10 people this week. I guess it was 10. I didn't count. 10, something like 10. And I said, and these are all people that I guess more or less read their Bibles, probably have read the book of Hebrews, right? And I said to them, hey, I've got to preach on that really hard passage that says, if you sin deliberately, you're trampling the blood of the Son of God under your feet. There's no way to be renewed to repentance. It's just a fury fire of judgment that awaits the adversaries and you if you do that and i said you got you ever thought about what you would do if you had to preach on that and they they all said no i skip that passage every time i've never read it i hate that thing i would never ever read it and so i think what happens is so i think what happens is we all know the reason for that right we all know why people respond From the guy who, I I didn't ask a guy like this, but if I asked a guy who's addicted to crack cocaine, to the guy who's looking at pornography repetitively, to the guy who's repetitively losing his temper with his children and wife, to the woman who has shut herself off from her family, to the pastor who's riddled with greed and lust for power, all of these people, and I suspect that means all of you, are suspect that deep down, you are sinning willfully, and that by sinning willfully, you're storing up wrath for yourself. And my answer to that, all that, this morning is this. That probably is not what exactly, he's kind of, but probably not exactly what the writer is talking about. It may be true, but it's probably not true in the way that you think. I don't think that your character defects or your peculiar sins mean that a fury of fire that consumes the adversaries is after you and is on your tails. And can I give you just five verses, other verses in the New Testament really quickly that make me justify that? The first is from 1 John 1.8. This is the simplest and the sweetest. One, uh, this if we have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Romans five one. That's number two. Therefore, since we have just been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. There's nothing in there about your sin or your repetitive sin. Three, uh, Romans eight, which is the unbreakable chain of salvation. Paul says. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Four, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. And then this is my favorite. I dug this way out deep, deep dark in the Old Testament. Hosea 14, it's the best one. I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon." Those are five verses in five different ways from five different genres that say that repetitive sin, even when it's the same one, cannot be the entirety of the issue. They will not eventually damn you. I actually think that there is a real problem here, though, and that repetitive sin can send you to hell. But I think it's much more complicated than just one verse. And the way that you learn that is, if you look at the way that this passage is bracketed out by two passages that say very different things. They modify Hebrews 10, chapter 26 very well. You remember what I said at the beginning, that the last time David spoke, he talked about just with zeal, the writer is saying, stop forsaking the assembling of yourself together. Do not do that. That will be dangerous. And then like the very next thing he says is, for if you go on sinning deliberately. So that's one thing. In the following paragraph, which we read, there's this dynamic, mind-blowing reminder that says something like this. I know better than this about you. You're nothing like the people I spoke about before. You're just not like them. It reminds me of a father who's got a 25-year-old son that's wasted the last four years of his life doing things that are unthinkable. And the father says, you didn't used to be this way. That's not who you are. I don't believe that about you. I know you. I've known you since you were in your mom's belly. This isn't you. You've had four years of disaster, but that's not who you really are. Come home. Please come home. Help us restore you again to salvation and restore you again to this family. And so that final passage that we read alters the significant words a bit. The words in that passage. This is a very different tone. And so it seems that there's a way to modify. The writer wants us to know this kind of sinning that finally leads to judgment. That kind of sinning is a sin, and it can something can happen. But the sin that draws us into more sin and more sin and more sin that we call apostasy is the kind of sin that just continues to draw us away from each other. And so if you bring it all in context, the, the sin that brings judgment... Is the sin that draws you away. It's the sin that says, I'm just too embarrassed. I can't see these people anymore. That's really dangerous. It's that kind of sin that says, I don't want to be a part of the church community any- anymore. There's too many people in this room that know me too well. I just can't talk to God anymore because He just knows me too well. And that's why verse 35 comes in, and it's like you can almost hear the writer shouting, don't throw away your confidence. Please don't throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your confidence. You don't need to. And isn't that the first thing that sin does? It begins to sap your confidence. God doesn't want to hear from me. I've done that thing and sinned against that person for the last time. They don't want anything to do with me, and now I'm completely alone. I've, I think our anger, our lust, our substance abuse, our adultery, our murder, our voyeurism, our failure to raise our children properly, our lack of tenderness towards our friends, our spouses, and our family, our theft, our resentments against our boss, all of those things can and will send some of us in this world to hell, but they do not do so automatically. To the one who doesn't throw away his confidence, those things are nailed to the cross and forgotten for all eternity. And so the thrust of the writer's words is, don't throw that away. Because all of that can be forgiven if your confidence doesn't leave you. So let me close just by reading, I just wanted to read these last two verses from this section. I think these are some of the sweetest words in the Bible. They're, they're sweet because they're real and they're gentle at the exact same time. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray that you would continue to grow these things in our lives and in our hearts. Will you help us um, to not throw away our confidence? We don't want to be like those that shrink back. That takes a lot because the first thing that sin begins to do with us is it begins to sap our confidence. We stop believing that you love us. We stop believing that the people around us love us. We stop believing that we have worth of any kind or value of any kind. And yet your gospel reminds us over and over and over again that we're yours. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're your children and that we have an eternal weight of glory that awaits us just on the other side of this life. Will you prepare us for that, Lord, and give us the strength to live lives that look to that end? In your name, amen.